1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. In this episode, I interview Anthony Tucker-Jones about his book, Kursk 1943, Hitler's Bear Harvest, that was published by the the History Press in 2018, and the paperback edition will be coming out in 2023. The Battle of Kursk is often considered one of the most pivotal battles of World War II, and 2023 will actually mark the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Kursk. Anthony Tucker-Jones spent nearly 20 years in the British intelligence community before establishing himself as a defense writer and military historian. He has written extensively on aspects of warfare in the Second World War and has produced several other books for the history press, including Slaughter on the Eastern Front, The Killing Game, Spitfire to Reaper, and many more. So tune in as as Anthony Tucker-Jones and myself discuss this pivotal moment in World War II history, and also how does it fit into the wider context of the strategic situation of the Second World War in 1943. Anthony Tucker-Jones, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, Stephen. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Yeah, so we always like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself, and what's a little bit of the backstory behind uh, writing this book,
0: sure um i mean i for a long time i worked for um part of the british intelligence community something called the defense intelligence staff which i guess probably equates to the american dia defense intelligence agency it's an analytical body um i did that that for many years i've had various other jobs over the years but um these days i'm fortunate enough to write full-time uh, which is very nice. I've always had uh, an interest in military history, like most military historians, you know, since being at school and being a kid, um, you know, growing up, models, wargaming, the comics, the books, you know, the movies, all those sorts of things that typically do inspire people to become historians, um, ironically, rather than, you know, dusty old archives. But that that's kind of my, my, my route, if you like. Um, in terms of writing this book on Kursk, Uh, The main thing that inspired me was I'm uh, very, very interested in armoured warfare and tanks. I've written a lot of books on them over the years. And I was always enthralled by, you know, the sort of narrative that Kursk is the biggest, most famous tank battle in history. One of the most decisive battles in history. Um, You know, Hitler had a chance there. It was touch and go, but it didn't work. So I I was kind of inspired to get my teeth into it, if you like, um, from a grassroots level. The other thing I like to do as a historian, I'm a great believer in context. You know, um, quite often we're all guilty of we'll look at a battle uh, purely on beginning and end, and that's it. But I always think it's very important to look at a battle within the wider context of what was going on in the time, what the stresses and strains were on the commanders. Um, So that, if you like, was sort of my challenge I set myself. And I kind of wanted, you know, like most historians, you want to get down there, uh, you know, amongst the grass, if you like. What was it like to be there? How did it feel? I always think it's good um, to give a bird's eye view from your common soldier's point of view and also the commanders. Um, Something we all suffer from as historians, of course, is we have the benefit of hindsight. So it's always very, very careful to apply that judiciously uh, because, of course, the men at the time did not have the bigger picture that we have the luxury of having today, you know, because the battle has been poured over so much. At the time, your senior commanders and indeed your guys on the ground did not really have much idea of what was going on, other than what was immediately in front of them. Um, so it's it it is to try and convey maybe that sense of uh confusion, um, but also try and inform the reader of where does Kursk sit actually. In, in terms of being a huge tank battle, but also what was its impact on the Eastern
1: Front? Yeah, you uh, you really weave together like both the big picture and then also just the pri- the personal stories. And that brings me to my next question: What type of sources did you have to consult uh, for the research for this book? Uh, and I would always es- been... sorry, go. On. Oh, and I would especially be interested in uh, like if you had any issues with like accessing like the Soviet sources.
0: Um, well, we, we, you know, we're very, very lucky because over the last few decades, there's been a very, very steady trickle of particularly Soviet memoirs now available in English. There's been um, you know, a very notable trend in recent years where publishers, fortunately, have been encouraged uh, to publish the memoirs of riflemen, tankers, uh, generals. So accessibility is actually pretty good, uh, particularly on English language sources, Um my contacts are quite funny. They always warn me off of the complexities of trying to make sense of of, of the Russian archives, but I've I've never really found it a problem as such. Um, the other challenge, of course, as a history as as a historian, is just how far down in the weeds do you get. That's that's you know, and I'm, and I'm pleased that you enjoyed the book and that you you thought it was a good balance because that's the challenge when you're writing it is is. When you're using first-hand accounts, what's the value added? Because obviously it needs to inform the story that you're telling. Um, So it can be quite a challenge. But as I say, um, there's certainly no shortage of memoirs. And what's good about them is they tend to be a lot more honest, you know, because obviously certainly up until what, probably the early 80s, all we had was the Soviet line on, you know, how the battle went, number of casualties uh, obviously, you've got the official history of the Great Patriotic War. But all those sorts of sources, you do have to treat with a great, you know, as we say, pinch of salt um, in that you just know uh, all those casualty figures and the claims that they make are always inflated. Which, of course, is not to say that Germans didn't do exactly the same things. I mean, that's part of the propaganda of war. But um, in, in subsequent years, it it it, it can be quite a key... You know, trying to disentangle truths, half-truths, particularly from from Soviet sources. Um, And I do know a lot of historians, I mean, you know, historians tend to do this with most military history, but certainly with Kursk, it's one of those classic battles where historians have tied themselves in terrible knots, trying to figure out, you know, how many tanks did the Germans lose, how many did the Red Army lose... What really were German losses at Prokhorovka? You know, there's there's this sort of ongoing debate of maybe the battle's not as important as it is, but I mean, we can come on to that a bit later.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, there was also uh, I think Ben Wheatley who recently tried to argue that no, curse was actually a German victory based on the battlefield losses he calculated. But, of course, he's relying on German reconnaissance photographs. So, of course, that may skewer it a little bit, even though, of course, it's looking at the battlefield. But, I mean, it is still from the German perspective very much so.
0: I mean, the the important thing to remember, of course, is the Germans may have indeed knocked out more uh, Soviet tanks, but ultimately um, the Soviets were left in control of most of the battlefield. uh, And that's the clincher. And of course, as as I'm sure you're probably well aware, the one thing that Germans were really good was recovery of damage from broken down tanks. And as long as they remained in possession of the battlefield, they could minimize their losses. Uh, I mean, they did this, you know, Rommel did it time and time again in North Africa. They'd suffer quite heavy losses, but if they were left in control of the battlefield, they'd retrieve them and obviously their, their workshops would repair them and put them back into action. But I think the crucial thing, obviously, with something like Kursk and, you know, Bagration the following year, the Germans kept losing ground um, fairly rapidly uh, and on numerous occasions were forced to abandon large amounts of equipment. And that, of course, starts to have an attrition
1: effect on their combat capability. Yeah, very much so. Uh, Now, uh, let's kind of back up uh, a little bit, uh, a couple of years now, because what is like the strategic situation on the Eastern Front in 1943? And maybe uh, very quickly, I'll kind of get our listeners up to speed in 1941 june 1941 the germans attacked the soviet union by about october they reached the gates of moscow but then by december the soviets counter the germans in 1942 they kind of launched their summer offensive uh which towards the Caucasus and then stalingrad but then of course the battle of stalingrad kind of drags on so now we're at the beginning of 1943 what's the strategic Situation on the Eastern Front, like
0: uh, I think the thing to remember on the Eastern Front is that both the Red Army are and the Red Air Force are resurgent. You know they suffered absolutely appalling losses during forty-one and forty-two, uh, losses that most armies would simply have collapsed as a result of. Uh, the Soviet Union was fortunate and it had this vast manpower, so it kept replenishing its ranks all the time. And it, and it had started to find its feet, again, probably sort of mid to late 1942. But the thing that the Red Army had not worked out really was combination of, you know, sort of blitzkrieg tactics, if you like, all-arms combat groups. They simply couldn't get it right. Um, so even when they rejuvenated their armies, you know, um, they kept suffering major defeats. And at Kharkov in forty two, they, they suffered badly. Um, the other thing is that they began to appreciate that, obviously, uh, by late 42, the German armed forces and their allies were horribly overstretched, which obviously which, which is what brings us to the beginning of 43 when the German Sixth Army uh, surrenders at Stalingrad. Uh, and as we all know, that's a pivotal, pivotal point in the war on the Eastern Front. It doesn't signal victory um, for the Soviet Union, but it shows the Red Army that it can win. It can recover ground. And. Um, and that it is capable of large-scale operations because it had struggled to conduct those previously. Um, and the liberation—well, not liberation, but you know, the regaining of Stalingrad and the trapping of the German Sixth Army and the destruction of uh, Hitler's satellite armies, so the Italians and Romanians and the Hungarians around Stalingrad—it gave the Red Army newfound confidence in itself. Uh, that defeat also then posed a problem for Hitler because, of course, many of his allies in Eastern Europe began to question their alliance with Nazi Germany. Um, So he had to do something early 43, mid 43, something dramatic to reassure his allies. So in many ways, Operation um, Citadel was conducted for political reasons as much as military reasons. And again, we can come on to this a bit later. But part of Hitler's Thinking uh, in authorizing that offensive uh, at Kursk was he needed to do something dramatic to reassure uh, Mussolini in Italy, Horthy in uh, Italy, um, and Antonescu in in Romania that um, all was well that actually this Stalingrad was a setback it wasn't didn't signal a major problem for the Axis allies in the Eastern Front uh, and that kind of clouded his judgment so by forty three. The Germans are obviously in a tricky point, because if the Red Army can capitalise on its victory at Stalingrad, it poses a threat to the German presence in the Caucasus, in the Kuban, and in the Crimea, and in the southern part of uh, you know, the European Soviet Union, the western part of the Soviet Union. Uh, and initially, what the uh, Red Army did in early '43 was it tried to capitalise on Stalingrad by liberating Kharkov, which it did successfully. Um, down in the Ukraine, only to have the Germans roll them back out and they suffered another major defeat. So in many ways, Hitler was encouraged by the victory at Kharkov, which was facilitated largely by the SS, the Waffen-SS, uh, and also the need to do something, you know, grandstanding uh, some sort of large major victory for the benefit of his allies. So he had these two things weighing on his mind by, you know, by the spring of '43, for that
1: very good. Now, uh, why specifically a curse did Hitler want to uh, launch his attack to try to regain the initiative and also reassure his allies? Was there a particular reason why, course, he chose that area?
0: Throughout fighting on the Eastern Front, uh, obviously the front was never ever a straight line. You know, it, it went around geographic features, towns, cities, rivers, forests, mountains, and hills. So the concept of the Eastern Front being a straight line didn't exist, and in the case of Kursk, uh, after Stalingrad, the Red Army had liberated that city and they had created this massive salient or bulge in the front line which protruded uh, into the Germans' um, area, if you like. So this massive salient, it was about, I'm going from memory here, but it it was about, uh, I think, 80 miles wide by 50 deep or something like that. So this huge pocket all around um, Kursk. Uh, And Hitler thought a good way of securing a decisive victory would be to nip that pocket off by attacking from the north and south on the shoulders of that pocket and trap the Red Army forces inside. Um, So militarily, it was a sound idea, um, as we'll come on to see. In practical terms, uh, it was woefully misguided.
1: Kind of trying to repeat some of the victories that they had in uh, forty-one, like, for example, at Kiev, where they really trapped the the large numbers of Soviet forces and they made a decisive victory, it sounds like.
0: In Minsk as well, um, Smolensk, you know, you're right, in '41, I, I can't remember what the total figure was, but the Germans captured something like 3 million um, Soviet troops, you know, uh, because they were trapped. They would circle around, you know, Blitzkrieg worked, they'd circle around behind them, cut them off, uh, the Red Army would launch counterattacks, which would fail, uh, and then the troops in the pockets would surrender. So, you're right. You know, you can understand Hitler's thinking um, in terms of if he could do this, because um, by the time the attack was launched, uh, the Red Army had two fronts inside that. So sort of roughly the equivalent to two German army groups. So there were a lot of troops in that salient. So if he could have caught them, um, it, it, it would have been a decisive victory. But of course, the, the key factor with it all was, did the Germans have the ability to achieve that or not?
1: Yeah, so uh, what were some of the debates uh, within the German high command about this proposed operation at uh, Kursk? And you bring up a lot of the German generals and most notably Heinz Guderian, who many people know was kind of like the figurehead of uh, the panzer uh, blitzkrieg tactics. And then also Erich von Munstein, who was critical commander at Kharkiv. And he's going to play a role in the battle of Kursk once it gets launched.
0: Uh I don't know about you, but that's again—that's one of the things that fascinated with the, the battle. Um, I love the sort of logistic side of a campaign, and I love the politicking. Um, some people like it, some people don't, but I find it fascinating—the behind-the-scenes arguments that go on. <clears throat> so certainly, in the case of the Germans, they had a number of options on the table, um, and the one most favoured by the Wehrmacht was, for much of forty-three, we will sit tight you know, we'll recuperate after the disaster of Stalingrad, we'll re-equip, rebuild our armies, we'll persuade the uh, Axis allies to provide more troops, um, and we'll build our strength back up, uh, ready for some sort of decisive action, either towards the end of 43 or early um, 44. Uh, A lot of Germans were increasingly of view they needed to conduct some sort of flexible defence, so not be stuck on tight defences. Um, but for Hitler, of course, he was of the view that he needed to do something to shore up his uh, allies. And also he needed something dramatic, again, in the wake of um, Stalingrad and obviously encouraged by the victory at Kharkov. Um, but Hitler's, Hitler's generals were divided. Um And initially, the plan had been they needed to do it as quickly as possible. So the idea was sort of floated that they would do it in April. It didn't happen in April. But then we're looking at May. It didn't happen. But then we're looking in June. It didn't happen. And obviously, it kicks off uh, 5th of July, 43 in the summer. So they wasted three months. And in that time, of course, the Red Army began to build up its strength, not only in the salient, uh, but on the shoulders either side, and indeed behind the salient, which actually was to prove a decisive factor for the battle. Um, so the so the Germans, the Germans were divided. Um, you're right, Guderian was against it. Um, he, he was always a good commander for seeing the big picture, uh, and he felt that it wasn't a good idea. Uh Model wasn't that keen, but he was only a general, so he didn't carry the weight of the field marshal. Uh Von Klug uh largely a yes man, von Manstein obviously was buoyed up by his victory at Kharkov, but again I think felt they should have done something smaller scale, you know, because what they were envisaging was a was a major, major offensive to nip off this this bulge. Um and what also didn't help the Germans was that Hitler kept dithering. Um, as I say in the book, you know, he himself famously said, the whole idea of Operation Citadel makes me sick to the stomach. So he knew in his heart of hearts that what he was asking them to do was not achievable, nor was he going to have a victory. And, and he kept dithering. And as I say, he, you know, he, he, they wasted three months while he kept dithering as to whether or not he was going to commit himself to it. And by the time he had committed it, himself to it, it was too late. His generals knew it was too late. Uh, German intelligence knew it was too late. And of course, the Red Army also knew it was too late because actually they were at the, you know, the the height of their preparations, if you like. So they were they were poised and ready to go because Stalin and his generals, you know, Zhukov, Rokosovsky, uh, Vatutin, they were having the same debate. You know, they built up all these forces in Kursk and they were like, well, do we let the Germans attack and we counterattack? Should, so should we let the Germans exhaust themselves then we'll strike back? Or should we attack first? Uh, because, of course, one of the problems the Germans had, because the Soviets had created the Kursk salient, it meant the Germans had bulges to the north and south, which themselves were in, uh, were at risk of being nipped off. And of course, the Red Army was quite keen on nipping off those bulges and therefore leveling out the, um, you know, leveling out that front in that entire area. Um, so both sides were kind of like they didn't they had all these options on the table, but they didn't really know quite how it was going to play out. Now, in a way, of course, Hitler played right into Stalin's hands by deciding finally to say, let's go. Whereas, of course, if the Red Army had launched its offensive with superior numbers, but against Germans uh, in fixed positions with sufficient forces to launch large-scale counterattacks, if they could have done something like they'd done at Kharkov, then the battle may have gone completely different. But Hitler was determined to force the forced the day and obviously
1: paid the price yeah and also on the grand strategic level uh the axis are in trouble in north africa and they're also preparing for a possible invasion of italy so of course that kind of weighs upon uh, the german decision but also of course uh this plays into what is the relationship between the soviets and its and the western allies during this time uh how does this play a role
0: we, you raise a good point there, because of course, obviously Mussolini was not keen what was going on the Eastern Front, because he'd he'd lost an entire army at Stalingrad, uh, and he's about to lose another one in Tunisia, uh, and if that happens, obviously mainland Italy is then under under threat. So you can understand why he's wavering about his commitment on the Eastern Front. Um, yes, yeah, certainly in terms of Stalin and Roosevelt. Uh, you know, and Churchill and uh, Eisenhower. Stalin, of course, was increasingly annoyed that the Western Allies not opened the second front. I mean, that was continually a bone of contention from 42 onwards. That um, Stalin felt the Red Army, and quite rightly, of course, was doing all the work. You know, the Red Army was in the meat grinder while, in his view, the Allies were mucking about in the Mediterranean, you know, trying to kill in North Africa. That wasn't helping him, you um, But, of course, what would help Stalin would be a threat to uh, Italy because that had the potential of knocking Mussolini out of the war, which was something that Hitler could ill afford.
1: Yeah, and a big part of the relationship between Stalin and uh, the Western allies was uh, Lend-Lease, where they were trying to send uh, supplies and equipment to the Soviet Union to help prop them up. Because, of course, a lot of the major industrial areas were taken over by, were occupied by the Germans and they hadn't fully uh, uh, rebuilt their industries uh, beyond the Urals because they tried to uh, move the industry there outside of the range of the the German Luftwaffe. But yeah, uh, what impact is Lend-Lease having on the Eastern Front by 43?
0: Well, I, as I'm sure you probably picked up in the book, I devoted an in, entire chapter to that and it's called Gifts from Uncle Sam, you know, um, looking at the issue of Lend-Lease because I hadn't realized until I looked into it a lot more thoroughly just what a bone of contention it was amongst the Allies. You know, that Britain and America were running these Arctic convoys, suffering terrible losses because of the Luftwaffe uh, and the Kriegsmarine operating from Norway to get this equipment to um, the Soviet Union. Uh, But of course, Stalin didn't want to acknowledge publicly that he was being helped out by the capitalist West. So showed little or no gratitude uh, culmination of which is the U.S. ambassador in Moscow uh, threatened to issue a you know, press release to the media saying how ungrateful the Soviet Union was. Uh, he couldn't guarantee that Congress would continue to authorize, you know, funding for equipment to go to the Soviet Union if the Soviets didn't show a bit more gratitude. Of which, you know, again, Stalin's furious because he's of the view we're the ones that are doing all the dying here, and you're complaining about, you know, tanks and aircraft that you're shipping to me, but. You're right. The impact it had, of course, is that those suppliers gave the Soviet Union a very, very important breathing space. So while it was relocating all its industries, a lot of that equipment helped fill the gap that was created, you know, when the tank factories moved and, and everything else. And the other thing is that the Soviets quite rightly took the decision that they would concentrate on tank production, uh, which meant their vehicle production was not uh, suffered as a result. So, uh, Western lorries, particularly American-built ones, actually uh, were crucial in helping you know move the Red Army around the battlefield, uh, and in many ways, play you know uh, made a greater contribution than the likes of the Sherman or the Grant or indeed you know the British Valentine and the Matilda or the Churchill, which were shipped over. Uh, because I I was interested in terms of Kursk, actually, not a lot of lend-lease equipment was used. Some tanks appeared on the battlefield. Uh, and some American aircraft were used by the Red Air Force, but not a lot. So it, it, it didn't have a particularly great impact on the ground. But of course Stalin was of the view uh Western attitudes were actually uh hampering his preparations for his big summer offensive because he wasn't getting all this equipment promised, particularly aircraft. Uh I mean as we all know, of course um both the red air force and red army had a pretty dim view of western equipment um because it didn't meet their requirements i mean to be fair it wasn't designed uh to operate you know on russian countryside or indeed in the russian winter so a lot of the shortcomings it had actually they were fine being used elsewhere but they were not good in in, in north africa and, and also because the russians had come up with um a, a soldier-proof warming tank in the t-34 you know it was everything that they needed easy to produce well armored uh reasonably gunned and of course crucially the wide tracks that could cope with mud or snow uh which western tanks on the whole couldn't
1: yeah that reminds me of uh and of course this gets to 1945 but i was uh doing uh, research on the soviet operation in manchuria right at the end of world war ii and i was reading accounts about like how the soviets didn't really like the shermans that were that they used in that operation and it just didn't really uh meet up to their standards compared to the t-34 so uh but uh yeah and we'll get to some of the tank design uh issues in a minute Uh, but one thing you also talk about is the role that soviet partisans played uh in the build-up to kursk and for those who don't know the partisans were uh kind of like guerrilla fighters who were operating behind the German lines trying to do sabotage and also in in many ways giving intelligence to the Red Army.
0: Yes uh, the again because of the size of the Eastern Front which is absolutely enormous and the occupied territories that the Germans occupied I mean they had uh, obviously they were in a whole of Poland uh, they're in the Baltic States, they are in Belarus, white Russia they are in Russia, they are in Ukraine, they are in Crimea, there in the Caucasus, you know, this huge, absolutely huge area that the German military had occupied. And the problem, of course, the Germans had was that they had to police it. You know, so entire, the entire length and breadth of the Eastern Front partisan act- activity was a major problem, tied down huge amounts of uh, troops, and also, of course, led to atrocities, which provided more recruits for the partisans. Because obviously, every time the Germans burned down a village and shot villages, uh, all the locals would then. Take to the forest and join the resistance, um, but for Kursk, what the partisans tried to do was to hamper German supplies, so to try and stop the German build-up that, which is obviously going going on around the, the Kursk salient uh, uh, with Army Group Centre and Army Group South. Uh, they tried to hamper that by attacking the railroads, both to the north and south and to the west of the salient, um, quite effectively. It has to be said uh, but of course the Germans were dab hands at repairing stuff, so actually it didn't greatly hamper modal or indeed uh, Manstein's operations um but what it meant as i say but but it 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 was a nuisance and it tied down large large numbers of rear area security troops and indeed as you as you probably know, the Germans readily made use of locals. Um, you know they would tap tap into local animosities and recruit them as as, as militias to to police towns and villages and railways and, and and roads and again as we both know on the whole the worst thing you can do is arm civilians and uh, create militias because they lack military discipline uh, they lack a military hierarchy uh, usually it's a recipe for anarchy. Um, and complete lawlessness and of course that's what tended to happen uh but as i said earlier the irony is of course what it did is it played into the soviet union's hands because it made the locals hate the germans and their allies even more
1: yeah now also another important uh aspect that helped with the build-up to Kursk, and maybe uh builds into your uh, uh, background in intelligence is that there were also intelligence operations, both uh, British with Bletchley Park and also uh, the Lucy Ring, which was uh, a Soviet intelligence operation. And they're able to uh, pick up on like what the Germans are intending.
0: So, I mean, I was fascinated by that. Um, It wasn't something I was aware of before I started researching the book. Um, You know, as you can imagine, my my floor, my chin almost hit the floor when I learned that the, the Soviets had a spy with John Cancross, actually in Bletchley who was stealing secrets. Uh, they had moles elsewhere that were feeding them secrets. Uh, and you're right, they also had uh, the Lucy Spy ring uh, in Switzerland, which was feeding them information as well, um, because the head of the sort of German communication system actually was an anti Nazi and was readily siphoning. Um, intelligence to Switzerland, which ironically backed up what was coming out of Bletchley Park. But Stalin, on the whole, was convinced it was some sort of allied plot and therefore that they were uh, deliberately feeding him the information. Uh, But I think he must have got to a point when he realised what was coming out of the Western allies and indeed out of neutral Switzerland was reaffirming what he knew from on the ground, because obviously the Soviets had their own radio intercept system. The partisans, obviously, as we've just discussed, were, were obviously spying on railroads, bridges. You know, they were busy counting how many trucks were on that train, how many tanks were on that train. So they were constantly, you know, feeding information back to the Red Army about the German buildup. Uh, but, it all, but it all it all, fed in. I mean, um, I'm trying to remember his name now. Uh, actually, I can see it on my shelf so I can. So there's a chap called Jerry Roberts a few years ago who worked in, um, in Bletchley Park. His memoirs were published. Uh, and he was convinced that actually Bletchley played a major part in helping the Russians obtain, or the Soviets obtain a victory at um, Kursk because of the help it had got out of uh, Bletchley. Because, of course, there were... There was a spy in Bletchley that was feeding intelligence to, obviously, his contacts in the UK. Uh, you've obviously got the spy ring in Switzerland. But also Churchill had authorized Bletchley to feed uh, their you know, their intercepts and their decoded uh, messages, particularly once they'd um, broken Lorenz, which is the German high command um, cipher. Uh, once they had Enigma and Lorenz, um, Churchill wanted to warn Stalin Obviously, what he had to do was find a way of not tipping him off that that intelligence came from intercepts, um, because it might betray the fact that Bletchley had obviously, you know, broken the German codes. Uh, and if that got back to the Germans, it would tip them off, and they would change everything, and, and that would be a, an intelligence disaster. So um, Jerry Reynolds and his colleagues at Bletchley fed information. Uh, to the Soviets, but they had to dress it up that it came from spies, uh, which unfortunately was slightly counterproductive because Stalin hated spies. He thought they were, uh, you know, the lowest of the lowest scum of the earth and traitors. Uh, and, and again, therefore, was not inclined to believe what Churchill was was, was feeding him. Um, but, you know, uh, Bletchley was able to give him pretty much a full orbit of the German buildup, um, Bletchley was able to give him information, as, as we'll come on to the fact that Hitler's fielding new equipment. Um, so I say, for me, I found that all fascinating because that wasn't an aspect of the battle that I was aware of. Um, and then as again, as you'll have seen, as a as a as a chapter on it, you know, all the sort of shenanigans and the skullduggery I mean, again, I was fascinated by the idea of you know John Carncross walking out of Bletchley with with um, paperwork stuffed down his trousers. Uh, which again led me led me to speculate that maybe uh we knew that Carl Cross was doing it, but, but we're turning a blind eye because obviously we wanted to try and help the help the Soviet
1: Union. Yeah, and this is also the time period for the Cambridge uh five, uh is it not? Yeah,
0: yes, yes. You've got um MI5 and six obviously we were having uh, problems with with spice. So yes, it wasn't just in Bletchley, obviously we we had you know other people who felt um that britain perhaps was not doing enough to help the soviet union and
1: therefore took matters into their own hands yeah and then when you mentioned stalin like thought spies were the lowest of the low i can't help but think maybe that might be because of his background as a revolutionary in Tsarist russia and he had to deal with like okrana spies all the time and even there's the common accusation that he was a agent for the Czarist secret for police the okrana so maybe that might be it played a role uh personally I
0: think also Probably because the Soviet regime was so brutal, as as we both know, people under torture will say anything. So uh testimony that you get from a torture victim is not really very reliable. And I think he you know, not not that the spies in the West were being tortured, but I that I think that in partly shaped his view on 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 espionage. And also, of course, um, you know, he'd come up through the ranks during the Russian Civil War with the whites and the Reds fighting each other. So that, that had been, you know, during that period there'd been a lot of espionage going on, both within the Soviet Union and a result of, of course, Western interests. You know, Britain and America and everyone were trying to work out who was going to win, what would happen if the Bolsheviks were won. So, yeah, he had he had a very, very dim view. The irony is, of course, is that Stalin's dim view of spies uh, and intelligence gathered by them actually helped him um or well, nearly saw him toppled because of June 1941 in Barbarossa, where he continually refused to listen to warnings that Hitler was building up in, in you know, in Poland and in and in Czechoslovakia and in, and in Prussia as a prelude to invasion. He he continually wouldn't believe it, even though he had impeccable intelligence. Um, you know, to say otherwise, he 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 accepted Hitler, who told told Stalin, "Oh, no, don't worry, it's it's all part of the deception plan to to to, to um." You know, wrong set Churchill into believing. Actually, I'm not going to invade England, but, but of course, none of that was true. His his heart was set on invading invading the Soviet Union.
1: Yeah, that reminds me of one famous story. I forgot the exact spy, but he got intelligence reports about the German intentions to invade the Soviet Union, and Stalin scribbled over the report. Well, tell your source to go f his mother.
0: <laughs> yes, I've heard that story as well. And again, you see it. You know that reinforces the point we're discussing that that he he had no no confidence in them whatsoever.
1: So uh, now we're kind of getting closer to, oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to say anything? Sorry, yeah.
0: Sorry, Steve. Yeah. My, my simple remark was going to be, which is remarkable, considering the Soviet Union was essentially a police state that relied on citizens informing on each other as enemies of the state. So that entire apparatus relied on relied on spying.
1: Yeah. Now we're getting a little bit closer to the launch of the battle. How do the Germans prepare for the attack? How do they build up their forces, uh, so to speak? Well,
0: that, that kind of... Nicely brings us on, obviously, to all the new equipment that was that was coming online. Um, I mean, essentially, obviously, the Germans had done the, the utmost that they could to re-equip um, their armies after the various disasters they would suffered, most notably in in Stalingrad. And the, and the thing to remember is that um, although combat on the Eastern Front wasn't continuous, it was fairly intense and over a long a long area. And of course, resupplying your armies, particularly for the Germans who were operating on on exterior lines was very difficult, whereas, of course, Red Army was operating, Okay, the Soviet Union's enormous, but was operating on interior lines. It had a lot more, not very good roads, but certainly pretty good railways that were feeding stuff from the factories and recruits and and equipment to their armies. So, But for the Germans, of course, it was a bit more of a struggle, and as we've discussed, obviously, the partisans were doing their utmost to to, to derail things. Um, You know, famously... Uh, resistance in poland was also causing problems because obviously there was a major railhead in warsaw so all this disrupted what the germans were doing but the germans of course had had uh, for quite a while been trying to fathom a way of overcoming the t-34 because it was a very good tank and had made much of the earlier panzers obsolete um and the germans had come up with the panther tank which was just coming into service obviously the tiger which had entered service the previous year Uh, And they were also creating all these sort of weird and wonderful hybrids. So they had um, the Porsche Ferdinand based on the rejected Porsche Tiger tank design. Uh, They also had the Hornet that was equipped with an 88mm gun. So they were doing all that they could to increase their anti-tank punch um, because they were increasingly aware of, it didn't matter how many tanks they seemed to knock out, the Red Army replaced them, because obviously once the Red Army's factories were up and running, um, I mean, it beggars belief how they did it, how they were churning them out, because, um, you know, when you see the, the loss rates, again, you would think, well, the, the Russian army's Soviet army should have collapsed. They kept losing so much equipment, but they kept replacing it. So for the Germans to stand any, any chance of withstanding renewed attacks by the Red Army, they knew that they had to keep, um, up in the ante on their anti-tank killing capability um and again you know by discussions earlier about what had driven hitler to to launch the curse offensive uh, he'd convinced that german technology which which throughout the war was a problem that he suffered from he was convinced that German technology would would give them the edge um but the problem that the germans had was that of course particularly their later war equipment it was over engineered Uh, You know, 234 was relatively simple. It was soldier-proof. It was difficult to break. Um, Whereas with German tanks, uh, the designs were exemplary, but they were difficult to build and they were difficult to maintain. Uh, The upshot, of course, was it meant by the time Kursk happened, they didn't have many Tiger tanks to hand and indeed didn't have many Panther tanks to hand, both superlative uh, tank-killing platforms. Um, And indeed with the, the Panther... It was essentially still in its trial stage. They'd they, they'd not managed to iron out all the faults with it. Um, you know, Guderian, who was in charge of all that, kept saying to Hitler, "You know, we need to postpone Curse because it's not ready." Uh, and Hitler kept saying, "No, it will be ready, um, and it's all going to be good to go, and and it's going to give us a victory." But you know. Um, Guderian was liaising, liaising firsthand with the training units, were that were you know working up the Panther, the factories and the designers, and he knew damn well that the thing was, as he called his problem child, um, that it was full of faults. I mean, by the time they got to the third third model, the I think it was Model G, the final one, uh, they'd ironed all that out, and it was a good tank. Although again, it, it was time-consuming to build, but the first two models, particularly the first one. Uh, they were just full of faults and problems and it and it and it wasn't ready and as i discovered in you know during the Kursk operations actually didn't have much impact on on the on the fighting uh and likewise with the Ferdinand you know Hitler insisted that nearly hundred of those were rushed to the front you know with a with a an 88 millimeter that was better than the one in the Tiger one it was destined to go in the tiger two hence the bigger turret uh but again the thing was a tank destroyer you know the gun was in a, in a fixed mounting. It couldn't rotate. Um, uh, the designers had not thought that actually putting a whole machine gun in it might be useful in case the thing was in danger of being overrun by enemy infantry. You know, So again, there were all these very, very silly mistakes that they made, uh, but Hitler just wouldn't listen. So he was convinced that, you know, his panzer armies had been rebuilt by the spring of 43, uh, and they were being equipped with all this new, you know, as I called it, um, Hitler's zoo. You know, you've got the bear, you've got the you've got the hornet, you've got the tiger, you've got the panther, um okay, you've got the Ferdinand, which is the Ferdinand till it later became the elephant. But you you know, you've got all these things named after wild beasts that sounded quite fearsome and terrifying. Um, uh, but the bottom line is that there simply were not enough of them. The the bulk of the Panzer armies actually were still relying on the Panzer III, which by uh, forty-three was woefully inadequate. Um, you know, but but I say again, it's all part of this that Hitler would would not listen. Um, you know, in his mind, and also, of course, the Waffen SS, as I said earlier, the Waffen SS successor Kharkov, had convinced him that the SS were the men for the job. You know, uh, that Paul Hauser and that SS Panzer Corps, they would cut through uh, to Kursk. Uh, you know, meet Modal, uh, and it will give him victory.
1: Yeah, you talk uh, quite a bit about uh, the rivalry between the Waffen SS and the the Wehrmacht, and how this kind of plays a role because Himmler wants like the glory for his soldiers at course, so he wants them to take the uh, the initiative. Uh, Could you expand on that point a little bit? Or,
0: uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know about you, Stephen, but I uh, this is something I, I I regularly bring up, but I'm I'm always fascinated by the plethora of private armies that Hitler allowed to be formed in in, in Germany. So you, you you know, you ended up uh, with the Luftwaffe, with all these Luftwaffe field divisions operating as infantry. You had the Luftwaffe with all these parachute divisions operating as infantry. Uh, And then you had the Waffen SS with all these, um, you know, Panzer grenadier Panzer and um, infantry divisions, again, operating outside the, pretty much outside the German army chain come command. I can't remember what the figure is. I mean, I think I calculated something like the Luftwaffe and the SS denied uh, the German armed forces but about 80 divisions. I mean, it's a huge number, all this manpower. Now, you and I would say, logically, all those personnel from those two organisations should have been funnelled into the army. But of course, uh, the Ger- Hitler never entirely trusted the German army. Um, so indulged both Hermann Göring and uh, Heinrich Himmler in them building up these private armies for themselves which to an extent as the war went on were subsumed under Army command you know what I mean the war from SS operated under under German army control but it but it complicated matters and 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 again of course what it meant was is that Göring had been um designated um you know Hitler's successor whereas of course SS Reichsfuhrer Heinrich himmler felt he should be Hitler's successor so a pair of them all the time were you know the, the, Terrible toadyism going on, you know. They they were always vying for Hitler's favor. And of course, the way that Himmler did that uh was on the whole, his premier armor divisions with them in the Waffen SS were really good. You know, for a while they got the cream, the equipment, you know, uh their training was better, more dedicated, they got up, you know, they had more fanatical troops because they drew on the, the youth, so they were more politically motivated, all these kind of things. So for a while to Hitler, it looked like the Waffen SS actually. OK, a lot smaller, uh, could could achieve what, um, you know, the army couldn't, because time and time again, the Waffen-SS had quite often come to the rescue of trapped pockets of German troops, you know, say, uh, uh, particularly after Kharkov, you know, Hitler kind of felt there's nothing the Waffen-SS can't do. And of course, Himmler kept whispering in his ear, that's true, mein Fuhrer you know, this we, we can do it. Let's go, let's do it. So that is, you, you had all these competing factors. So certainly on the on the southern shoulder of defence, if you have this powerful SS Panzer Corps, um that I that I that I think to be fair, you know, um even German army commanders hope they could pull off what was required of
1: them, yeah. There was also the Hermann Goering uh panzer division, which, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, was part of it, that.
0: yes, well, right. Yes, they're their own panzer division as well. Now, I mean, again, why? I mean, it, it's I'm <laughs> in fact, I think, did they did that not? I think towards the end of the war, that ended up as an entire corps, didn't it? Wasn't
1: there the Hermann Göring panzer? I believe corps? so, I believe so. And also, believe... the irony is, is uh, Himmler and Goering are you know, uh, rivaling for being the successor of Hitler, then neither become the successor at the end, it's oh, doris oh, yes. Yeah, and, I
0: mean, that was the great irony at the end of the
1: war. Yeah, and then I remember uh, reading uh, one quote from uh, Hitler, he lamented that he had a reactionary army, a Christian navy, and then only a national socialist Luftwaffe. Uh, so that kind of, that came to mind uh, with your answer uh, right there as well, about the rivalries.
0: Well, you're, that's a good point, actually, because uh, you're right. I mean, that was one of the one of the arguments that Göring himself used when Hitler had looked at maybe... Because, of course, after the Battle of Britain, the Luftwaffe was enormous, but it had all these ground personnel that it didn't really need anymore. Uh, and, of course, the army rightly went to Hitler and said, well, they should be drafted into the army's battlefield replacements. We'll replenish our divisions with them. And Göring simply said to Hitler, you know, the... Army's a bastion of old ways of thinking. You know, it's full of Catholics and, you know, as you rightly say, obviously because the Luftwaffe needed better educated recruits because they were, you know, they'd be technicians and armorers and mechanics and pilots, that they they on the whole had a better level of education, but it also meant, of course, they had been subject to a more a higher level of Nazi indoctrination, as were the Waffen-SS recruits. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why Hitler said, you know, permitted Gring to create these... Luftwaffe field divisions, which quite frankly proved to be a complete disaster and, in fact, a horrible waste of manpower.
1: Yeah. Uh, speaking of the Luftwaffe, what is the strength of the Luftwaffe and their ability to support Operation Citadel uh, during the Battle of Kursk?
0: It's not good. Uh, I mean, on the whole, the Luftwaffe were not keen on the idea um, because, again, the Eastern Front was so big. Luftwaffe was not big enough. So they had to keep moving their various air corps and their air fleets up and down the front as need arose to support the army. Um, obviously, particularly post Stalingrad and then post Tunis, so after the German surrender in Tunisia, uh, they'd airlifted a lot of troops in and they tried to airlift a lot out and lost loads of loads of aircraft so the Luftwaffe had suffered the most appalling casualties particularly with its transport fleet uh so its ability to support itself and the army in terms of you know flying forward supplies have been greatly hampered uh obviously it was a terrible attrition rate on experienced pilots you know for the Stalingrad airlift they'd had to call on you know instructors reservists retired people anyone they could lay their hands on to fly transport aircraft so the Luftwaffe was not in a not in a great in a great con- condition really um and also of course as we know <clears throat> the german uh air force didn't really have a strategic air arm you know it, it had medium bombers so it was a tactical air force designed for battlefield um uh support so it was very much tied to the requirements of the army um but it it, it knew by uh you know summer of 43 that it could support kursk but it was a it was a waning institution because it had taken such a battering. And like the army, of course, large sections of it couldn't be taken out the line to recuperate and be re-equipped and retrained because it was needed all the time. Um, you know, that was one of the problems that the Germans had taking, say, the Crimea and Sevastopol. They kept losing their air support because it was needed somewhere else. Um, so on the whole, the Luftwaffe were not really terribly supportive of the idea. The only thing they had was, of course, that their on the whole, their aircraft... And their flying ability and tactics was vastly superior uh, to the Red Air Force. But the alarm bells had rung down in the Kuban because the Red Air Force down there had actually wrestled uh, air superiority from the Luftwaffe. So at that point, it signaled that there was a, a turning in the air war, if you like. So the red air force like the you know the red army was slowly finding its feet it was slowly recuperating its training was getting better its tactics were getting better its aircraft were getting better its later model fighters uh you know i think it's the lavoshkin seven i think i'm going from memory here mig three you know all those later models actually were beginning to get on par with the Messerschmitt and the focke wolf you know their climb rates were improving um you know all, all the kind of the, the slight tweaks that you needed to, to improve photographs. They were slowly getting better.
1: Yeah. And then the, the, the red air force was also getting the, the illusion to the flying tank that was uh, yeah. really critical on this. And uh, yeah. And then you talk a lot about like the air combat that happened in coinciding with uh curse. Maybe uh, could you expand on that a little bit and then we'll get to the ground uh, campaign. Um,
0: yeah, sure. I, again, one of the things I was unaware of when I started researching the book was that the Red Air Force had launched uh, a large-scale preemptive airstrike before Citadel commenced. I didn't know this, and it, but again, that's a reflection of the growing confidence that the Red Air Force felt it had. Um, obviously, its intelligence was such that it 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 knew uh, about the German, you know, ground forces build up and the Luftwaffe build up, uh, and obviously it knew that a lot of the German bombers were bombed up and ready to go on airfield. So it launched this huge preemptive strike, uh, particularly in the Kharkov area, with a view of trying to take the look of out beforehand. The odd thing was the Germans had moved in, I think, their um, Freya radars. So it had early warning radars in the area. Uh, the Soviets were well aware of them, but made no attempt to knock them out, which, which they should have done. So, of course, it meant that the Germans were pre-warned that this large air armada was on its way towards their airfields. Uh, and obviously on the German airfields, there was a panicked moment because all the bombers and the dive bombers are all lined up, ready to go. You know, all the crews are waiting for the thumbs up. Um And they knew that they needed to put their fighters up quickly to fend off this air assault. They couldn't put the bombers up on their own because obviously they would be shot down by the accompanying fighters that were coming with the Soviet bombers. So um, they achieved this miracle in that, uh, you know, all the fighters managed to weave around all the bombers and take off and got into the air. Uh, And again, thanks to their superior tactics, they shot down a big chunk of the attacking force, uh, the Red Air Force's it had to turn tail with its its tail between its legs and the impact of that of course was not only did they not knock out the Luftwaffe prior to the opening of the German offensive it also meant that the Red Air Force was slow in supporting its ground forces when the offensive started uh, because obviously they needed to refuel and replenish their aircraft they needed to bring forward replacement aircraft for the ones that they'd lost uh, you know they had to retrieve pilots where possible um, so it I mean, Zhukov was furious, you know, know, Marshal Zhukov was furious that they'd wasted all this time and effort on this attack, which had no visible results. And actually, in the opening hours of the German attack, left the Red Army largely shorn of air cover.
1: Yeah, so now we get to July 5th, the beginning of the battle, and uh, now we're going to get to the ground attack or the ground combat. So how does the battle, of course, how does Operation Citadel go at first? Do the Germans have any initial successes?
0: Um, well, well, essentially, uh really is four battles. So you've got two separate battles fought by the Germans, uh, and then two separate battles fought by the, you know, offensive battles fought by the, the Red Army. So the opening battles... Uh, in the north, where you've got Army Group Center, uh, the key battle is for a place called Ponirí. The um, Germans had to cut their way through to that, and then onwards down to Kursk, so they could meet Army Group South. Uh, and in the south, uh, so you've got Model in the north with Ninth Army, and in the south you've got uh, von Manstein with uh, you know Army Group South and his various Panzer Corps, and he had to reach a place called uh, forgive my Russian here but Provorovka. Uh, and once he's through that, again he can then push north towards Kursk uh, and link up with Modal, and of course that would then create this pocket that Hitler envisaged, trapping both uh, Rokossovsky's Central Front and Vatutin's Voronezh Front inside that that pocket. Um, but as we intimated earlier, of course the Red Army spent the entire summer building defences in the Kursk salient and also on its shoulders, so they built these incredibly uh, deep, you know, enormous, enormously deep defences that the Germans are going to have to fight their way through. And a lot of the German commanders, before they lo- launched the offensive, they knew that these were not the good old blitzkrieg days where they'd slice through enemy defences, get behind them, uh, surround them, force them to surrender. You know, the, the, the German army and the corps commanders, they all knew that actually this was going to be a battle of attrition because they were going to have to bludgeon their way through Russian defenses. The only thing that they did not know was how quickly they would collapse. Uh, and the net result was in the north, Model managed to fight his way to a depth of about 10 miles. Uh, and in the south, uh, Manstein managed, Paul Hauser's Panzer Corps in particular, managed a depth of about 10. Um, so, it, it, you know, they were never in, nowhere near getting to Kursk. Um, now, of course, we go, OK, the Russian defence, uh, exemplary. Um, but, of course, in stopping those offences, the Red Army's burning up a lot of men, lots of resources, a lot of ammunition all the time. Uh, and it was touch and go all the time whether they could stop them. Uh, in the north, Model largely gave up. You know, he just knew he was wasting his time and his men. Uh, in the south, uh, Manstein almost got to Provorovka, and caused the Soviets quite a, a bit of alarm to the extent the two armies they had in their reserve front or the step front, which was sitting outside the salient, ready to launch their their counteroffensive uh, against both the German pockets to the north and south. They had to commit two armies um, to stop the SS Panzer Corps cutting through it, Provorovka. And of course, that then leads to this enormous swirling um, tank battle there where, um, you know. Enormous losses on both sides. But the upshot was the Red Army stops them. Uh, and at that point, uh, in the north, uh, the Red Army then goes over. So signalling battle three, if you like. In the north at that point, the Red Army goes, and then goes over to the counter counteroffensive. I think it's the 12th of July. Uh, and they clear the Aurel salient. So they clear the Germans completely out of that pocket, levelling out the northern part of the kurs salient. Uh, and then I think it was the beginning of August they launched that attack against the Germans, uh, against Belgorod and Kharkov, which are the sort of focal points on that, on the southern shoulder of their salient Uh, and again by the end of the month they've rolled them out back, so that again, that's your fourth part of the battle, if you like, fourth battle in the south Um, and and for the Red Army on the whole, you know, losses aside for them, their plan went like clockwork, because their idea was absorb Hitler's offensive. Uh, let them waste their energies and their resources. Once they've ground to the ground to a halt, will then go over to the uh, counteroffensive, which is what they did. And the problem that the Germans had, of course, was they didn't really have a large armored mobile reserve to stop the Red Army after they'd, you know given it they're all to try and break through to Kursk.
1: So what eventually uh, convinces Hitler to, you know, put a stop to Operation uh, Citadel? Well,
0: there's the, there's, the, there's the famous reason, which is obviously Operation uh, Husky, which is the invasion of Sicily, and then a- Allied landings in in Italy. But really, they were only window dressing. You know, Hitler knew it wasn't going anywhere. Uh, the Allied threat to Italy actually gave him a political excuse to stop Kursk. So, you know, he basically went, oh, well, we're going to have to transfer troops to Italy now to help Mussolini. Uh, we're going to have to break off the offensive. But I think deep down in his heart, and his generals certainly knew, uh, that Citadel was a non-starter from the beginning. Uh, and in fact, the threat to Italy enabled him to save face because he said, well, we, there's a new threat, so we must stop now. So that that's why they, you know, Officially it was the threat to Italy. Um yeah, but the reality was uh it, the gathered forces did not have the wherewithal to, to accomplish what he'd hoped for.
1: Now, what impact does uh the battle of Korsk have on both the Allies and uh, the Axis? Uh...
0: Um what it I mean, what it does, of course, is it signals that the Red Army is now very firmly resurgent. Um also kind of signals to the, the allies that they need to up their game in terms of opening the second front, because, you know, if the Red Army keeps this up, then they're going to win the war single handedly. Um, but the key thing it did uh for the Germans in particular, of course, is that breakthrough then began to threaten their position in the Crimea and the Caucasus and the Cuban, Uh, because if they pushed further south and could uh, and could liberate Kiev, then the whole southern shoulder of the German Eastern Front will be under under threat. So it's it's a decisive point. Also, for the Allies, um, it signalled that Hitler had spent pretty much the last of his offensive power on the Eastern Front. So the Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front were unable to conduct a strategic level uh, offensive on the Eastern Front from that point on. Um, So what it signalled was that pretty much from July 43, Hitler in one way or another will be in a permanent state of retreat. Now, uh, you could rightly argue, actually, the decisive point is Minsk uh, in July 44, the following year, when uh, Stalin launched Operation Bagration, because that then really does tear the heart out of the Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front. Um, But what it means is pretty much, uh, from 43 and Kursk onwards, is the Red Army's uh, got the strategic initiative. Now, the Germans managed to achieve numerous other other remarkable victories. You know, they rescue troops from enormous pockets. Uh, they continually give the Red Army a bloody nose. Um, you know, so so uh, as we know, the war on the Eastern Front is basically going to drag on until, um, you know, uh, April 45 when they end up in Berlin. But but for the Red Army, um, it, it, it signals actually they can, you know, Kursk could sort of, my, you know, Kursk had showed what good planning could do. Uh, and in a way, Kursk did as well, actually, because it's, it's you've got to say, uh Soviet planning was impeccable. Clearly, the Germans wasn't because they were just being overambitious.
1: Yeah. And also, uh, even the Germans were even able to launch like counterattacks through to the end of the war. But of course, it was nothing like, you know, the earlier offensives, like in 41, 42, or even going back to 1940 with the invasion of France.
0: So, you know, certainly I think by 1943, the, the nature of the of the war had changed because, of course, um, the problem that the Allies had had, you know, Britain, France um, and Russia in the opening stages of war, it was that classic dilemma of what do you do with your tanks? You know, do they just plod along and support the infantry when they need them to overcome strong points or is the tank an offensive arm in, it, in itself? And of course, the Germans had come to the conclusion that the tank was an offensive weapon in itself from the very beginning, and that's what made Blitzkrieg so successful. You know, it ran circles around the French armies because um, they, they were only just forming their own armoured divisions. The Red Army had the same problem as the, you know, Stalin had authorised them to put together these armoured mechanised corps because that was the future. Uh, the generals had then bickered over where that was right. They then disbanded them, you know, at the very minute that Hitler was about to invade, and they were in the basis of reconstituting them again when the Germans arrived. So no, no one could quite get their head round how modern armored mechanized warfare worked of course by 42 and certainly 43 the red army was playing the Germans at, you know the german army at its own game you know in terms of air support artillery tanks infantry motorized infantry you know it 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 had it 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 had learned the hard way about maneuver warfare and what that involves so he, for the germans i mean they'd lost that opportunity you know hitler famously had a sick six-week window to get himself to Moscow, capture Moscow, and force Stalin to sue peace in 1941. Um, As we both know, that did not happen. And, of course, pretty much from 41 onwards, he was in a war of attrition that he could not win. The Soviet Union's population alone meant Germany couldn't fight a war of attrition. You know, the Soviets could afford to trade one ground because the Soviet Union is so vast, uh, and two lives, you know, because it had the manpower,
1: yeah. And then, uh, yeah, getting back to the Red Army, I mean, uh, that this perfects what the, they called the deep battle, uh, doctrine, which was kind of like their counterpart to the blitzkrieg. Uh, uh yes, tactics.
0: I mean, during the 30s, you, yeah, you're right, I mean, during the 30s, they'd conducted exercises, with all this. Um, I mean, Zhukov, Zhukov knew because, of course, he'd implemented those sorts of tactics, um, in, in the Far East in 39. Uh, When the Soviet Union had briefly gone to war with Japan, I mean, again, he he gave the Japanese Imperial Army a a bloody nose by by doing an all arms battle, you know, with the tanks roaring forward to surround Japanese units, you know, followed by his infantry and artillery and an air force. So, I mean, for Zhukov, I mean, of course, Gold, the battle there was was a brilliant proving ground for him because. By the time the Germans had uh, arrived, he'd already experienced that 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 sort of warfare, and then of course, disastrously for for Germany, of course, Japan decided to strike south and not north against the Soviet Union again, uh, which meant Stalin avoided fighting a two front war. I mean that was probably one of the strategically one of the biggest disasters of the. Uh, for the Germans was that they could not persuade Japan to attack the Soviet Union again because they'd fought that border war in thirty nine and gone. Uh, thank you, but no, thank you. We'll we'll attack, uh, you know, British, Dutch, and American interests uh, in the Far East and um, you know in and in the Pacific. Uh, so they went that way instead.
1: Yeah, and I even read. Uh general Chuykov's memoirs because he was in china at that time trying to get the chinese to fight the japanese and he records his uh, discussions with both stalin and the soviet high command like no we need japan preoccupied in china because then that prevents us from fighting a two-front war
0: (laughs) Well, and as, and as we know, of course, it, it was um, Zhukov's Siberian divisions that were, you know, redeployed from the Far East to Moscow that helped help save Moscow. But of course, if Japan had attacked, they would not have been available for the defence of Moscow. So, um, you know, it's it's a again, that's what I find fascinating about the Second World War. It's this ginormous strategic jigsaw puzzle. You know, cause and effect all the time. Is if you take one player out of the equation, it has a knock-on effect somewhere else. So. Um, you know, it, I say for Germany, I think that was the, the biggest disaster for him, for, for Hitler, was that, you know, the Japanese chose not to fight the the Soviet Union again.
1: Yeah, I think we've got on enough tangents, although this is a very fascinating <laughs> yeah, <sorry. laughs> discussion. No, 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 you, no, no apologies. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll have to bring you back on uh, for more of these discussions. Uh, but yeah, this has been a very fascinating discussion. Do you have any final thoughts uh, about about Kursk?
0: I mean, I, hopefully, my book shows it wasn't as simple as everyone thinks it was. Um, you know, one of the dangerous things is—is—is is, is hindsight's a good thing? But you look at the battle now, and you go, "Well, the Germans were never going to uh, achieve a victory. What were they thinking?" So, part of my exercise was with, with this book was to try and inform the reader about exactly what they were thinking, and as you know, we've we've discussed all the debates and arguments that they were having. Um, but they, but but again, as we discussed earlier they they were hit was in this horrible jam that he knew he had to do something um you know to, to save face which of course militarily was ridiculous because even the argument from his generals that they should sit tight and and, and weather out the year while they re, re, rebuilt their forces meant they probably would have been constantly fending off you know large-scale soviet offensive so again there was the danger that the soviets might break through so it for well, the for the Germans, they had this terrible dilemma by forty three on on how they were going to conduct the war. Uh, so I hope I hope the book shows that, and then all the other factors. You know, military historians love the Panther and the Tiger, so it, it gives a bit of flavor. You know, as again, you know from the book, it goes in into quite a bit of detail about all the problems they had with it. You know, how the crews hated it, and how it broke down, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but, and 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 the fact that, of course, you know, it, it's from grassroots level. That it, that it gives you sort of window onto how how people felt them.
1: So we always like to end our interviews by asking our guests what are you working on now?
0: Uh, well no peace for the wicked. Um, I've got a couple of books that are sort of in the production stage so uh, my Battle of the Cities which looks at um, urban warfare on the Eastern Front so it chronicles the battles for about 20 different cities. Uh, in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe during the Second World War. Uh, that's at the proofing stage. I've, I've just been through the proofs with the publishers. Um, so that's getting ready to go to the printers, which is nice. Um, tail end of last year, I did a shortish book on the Battle of Berlin. And again, that's 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 with the publishers. Um, and then the next project I'm about to embark on in terms of writing is I'm doing a, a follow-up to my Churchill book, my Churchill Master and Commander uh, which is called Churchill's Iron Curtain, which looks at Churchill's um, second term of office as British Prime Minister uh, and his his involvement in the Cold War. You know, again, fascinating subject, and a lot of people, of course, don't realise that actually Churchill played a hand in creating the Cold War. So that that will that will be looking at that. Um, so that will be my main writing project for the year. I mean, more than enough to keep me quiet for a while.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely we'll have to have you back on the podcast, and we'll probably go into so many other tangents about World War ii history. Because yeah, like you mentioned, there's just so many different angles, and and there's just new information being coming out now. Now that more archives are becoming available.
0: Yes, and uh, and as I said to you earlier, you know, I, I always think the important thing about history is context. You know, uh, and you, and you can have context without it being boring. I mean, you know, oh, that sounds a bit dull, doesn't it? But actually, no. It's, you know, it's it's that. How does everything fit together? What's the bigger picture? And and for me, as a historian, that's the the thing I find, you know, stimulating when you're you're writing because let's let's be fair. You know, so many of these topics now are so well um, it, it It's kind of the thing that you bring to the 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 subject is is your perspective, you know, as a historian and a writer. Um, because for me, foremost, hopefully, I'm writing books that people enjoy reading. I mean, that's the key thing. You know, if you're educated as a second thing, then that that's great. But but as a writer, I want you to come away going, oh, that was a good read. I enjoyed that. You know, that that's you – know, and if you also go, oh, that's given me new insight, then that's, you know, that's 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 an added bonus. But so really – and also, like most writers, I, I principally write books that I would like to read, you know,
1: that's a really interesting thought. And it's kind of a parallel to my thinking is being the podcast host. It's like, well, I it's a very interesting topic, but yeah, we could get into like the real nitty-gritty details, but it's like, no, I actually want something like an engaging conversation where people will actually be be interested in listening to it, and also if they're not familiar with the topic, both, they'll come out of it more more learned about the topic than they did uh, at the beginning.
0: I think, you know, uh, if you want the sort of brass tacks and all the detail, then please go and read the book because it's in there as well. Uh, but like you say, for these sorts of, you know, rather fun fun chats, it, it, it's kind of a sparking ideas. And, and also for me, it's a great way of jogging your memory because you go, oh, yeah, no, I remember this or remember that. And also it gives you new insight on, again, how, how, how stuff fits together. So, uh, yeah. And also, of course, with books as an author, you simply cannot remember every, everything that's in it, you know. People go, oh, you know that comment you made on page nine? You go, did I?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Anthony Tucker-Jones, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. This was very fun. Uh, This was a Um, fun conversation. Thank you, Stephen. Absolute pleasure to be on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.